0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. For those of you that haven't been with us, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, doing it chapter by chapter rather than verse by verse, which is our normal format, Um, just because we want to cover it uh, a little bit quicker, um, but also we want to provide you the opportunity to be able to go back maybe in the future and listen through and to be able to do it in a timely manner as well. And so, um, working through it chapter by chapter gives us a good overview of what the message of Hebrews is, but also provides you a little bit of guidance about what to maybe study personally on your own, because we 're leaving enough leeway there uh, where we 're not trying to cover everything in the, in the chapter. And so it gives you the opportunity to either stud, study uh, before we teach it, or to kind of go back this week and study after uh, we teach the book of, uh, or the chapter of Hebrews chapter three. So um, covering it uh, from a chapter by chapter standpoint. Um, getting the overview, the big picture perspective. We started with kind of an intro to Hebrews and just saw a big perspective over all the chapters. And we said that there's two things going on here. There's a theological purpose and then a practical purpose. The theological purpose is for us to see that Christianity, specifically Jesus, is better than all other religions, particularly Judaism. We said in the context that people were being tempted to Uh, abandon Jesus and go back to the Old Testament system. They did not recognize and see that the Old Testament was pointing everybody to Jesus. And so they failed to see the flaw in their thinking that if we abandon Jesus, we can go back to the Old Testament. They didn't understand that the whole purpose of the Old Testament was to show us Jesus, right? So theologically, it's to increase our understanding that Jesus is better. And then practically, it's to encourage us not to walk away from him. So theologically, we want to see how the Old Testament points to Jesus so that practically we keep holding fast to him as we work through our life. We saw in Hebrews chapter one that Jesus is better than prophets and angels, that he's the climactic conclusion to God's progressive revelation about himself, and that we're to trust and follow Jesus with our lives. Hebrews chapter two, we saw the the danger of neglecting God's word and potentially drifting We said, rather than neglecting our salvation and drifting from the faith, we are to glorify God with our lives based on his word, which is our purpose for existence by seeking the all-sufficient help of Jesus. And so we talked about paying attention to God's word, not drifting away from it. We talked about seeing our existence, the purpose of our existence being to glorify God with whatever life he chooses to give us, right? That what he has called us to do is to make much of him in whatever situations he placed us in. Right, And then lastly, we said that Jesus offers us the best help possible because he's been made like us, he's endured things like us, he's been tempted like us, and he's overcome those things. So we saw him as a sympathetic high priest who uh, makes help available to us. And so the challenge last week application-wise, is your attention to the word proportional to your desire to not drift? that we place ourselves under the word not to increase our, our knowledge of God, but to ensure that we don't drift away from God. So are we putting ourselves under the word to the same degree that we don't wanna drift? Same thing uh, was also in the application there with our fight against temptation. Is your fight against temptation proportional to your desire to give God glory with your life? Uh, do those two things measure up? Your desire to give God glory and your desire to fight sin. That brings us to Hebrews chapter 3, and I want to read the chapter to us before we jump in and take a closer look at it. It says in verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that we are unable to enter because of unbelief. Our summary sentence for today, we must avoid Israel's mistake of letting our hearts grow hard to God's word by seeking to increase our trust and obedience for him with the help of others in our life who share the same goals. We must avoid Israel's mistake of letting our hearts grow hard to God's word by seeking to increase our trust and obedience for him with the help of others in our life who share the same goals. For our kids, we need to listen to the Bible and find others who can help us so that we do not develop a hard heart towards him. right, so the author of Hebrews is is giving us a negative example. He's showing us how Israel had drifted from God's word, how they had failed to believe in God as a result of that. And when they were placed in situations where they needed to trust in him, they, they drifted away and they fell away and they responded in disobedience, which ultimately led to their judgment and their punishment, right? So for us here in the New Testament, now the author is saying, hey, look to Israel, see their mistake, and how they let their hearts grow hard to the things of God. And avoid that, avoid that, by seeking to increase your trust and obedience for him, all right, putting yourself under God's word, and then soliciting help from others in your life who share the same goals, who can help hold you accountable to those goals as well. right, so we can't do this on our own. We can't do this by ourselves. And the New Testament never paints a picture where a Christian is supposed to exist detached from other believers, right? So we need to find other people who share the same goals as us, who can help exhort us or encourage us, come alongside of us and push us towards maturity in Christ, okay? Um, And we'll see how Israel failed to do that as well. They failed to listen to exhortations of people coming alongside of them and saying, hey, we should do things differently than you guys are thinking we should do them and how they ignored that exhortation. Okay, So we avoid Israel's mistakes of letting our hearts grow hard to God's word by seeking to increase our trust and obedience for him with the help of others in our life who share the same goals. From an introductory standpoint, um, I love how the Old Testament is described here as being divinely inspired. Um, That it's the same Holy Spirit who's writing the New Testament who also wrote the Old Testament. Look what the author says in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... And then he goes on to quote from the book of Psalms, right? So he is giving divine inspiration to the Holy Spirit. He's not highlighting David who wrote this Psalm. He's not saying, hey, look at David and listen to what David had to say. He instead says, listen to what the Holy Spirit had to say, right? We understand that the Holy Spirit said it through David, through David's penmanship, but it was the Holy Spirit where these thoughts originated and where these words came from. And so the Old Testament is described as being divinely inspired here. I love how it's also given in the present tense, Right? It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit said these things in the past. It says the Holy Spirit says these things today in the present tense, meaning that the Holy Spirit is still saying this from the book of Psalm, that it's not outdated, it's not old. Again, we said the goal in Hebrews is not to discard the Old Testament. Right, So the Holy Spirit is still saying these things today. In fact, the first quote, the first word quoted is, today if you hear his voice. This was also, it's also interesting to note, this, this passage was read in the synagogues regularly to introduce their time of worship together. So they would read this as kind of a call to worship. Today, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Right? like We pray for that very similar in, in our prayers before we get started. Right, like I, I try to consistently pray that as we come together, that God would, would speak to us and that he would encourage us and convict us and prepare our hearts to receive whatever it, whatever it is that he has for us today. They would read this in the synagogue. And so as the author of Hebrews is writing this, remember, these guys are thinking about going back to Judaism. So their ears would have definitely perked up when he begins to recite kind of their intro to worship. Okay, So he says, today, if you hear his voice, there's a sense of urgency about that. Also, by way of introduction, I love how the recipients of this passage are described as believers. Some of the wordage that's used here, says, uh, it calls them brothers, which reminds us of the family relationship that we enjoy together as believers. Calls them holy brothers, that word holy, being based on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus and what he has planned for us. And then it also says that they are partakers of a heavenly calling, right? It says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. The idea here is that the purposes that God has for them are bigger than earthly purposes. Remember, we talked in chapter two, he is fixing them through salvation. He is fixing them through sanctification. He is bringing them to glory because they were created to give glory. We were created to give glory to God, Sin enters into the world and and keeps us from doing that properly. And rather than giving up on us, Jesus comes. God sends his son to fix the problem so that we can give glory back to God again, right? So heavenly calling, this this bigger purpose, bigger than your job, bigger than your family, right? This heavenly calling. It's why it makes all of our circumstances make sense to us. Because God didn't promise, like I said, God didn't promise that you would get married. He didn't promise that you would have kids. He didn't promise that you would have a job that you loved. Right? He called you to give him glory in whatever life that he gives to you. That's your heavenly calling, bigger than your earthly stuff. The concept of a hard heart is seen in this passage. Um, and, And what I think we need to clarify here is that we're not talking about perfection. Therefore, we're not talking about somebody who slips and sins periodically what we're talking about when we talk about this hard heart type of a state it's a fixed attitude of disobedience towards god it's basically when you have symptoms of disobedience and they become a habit or a habitual type of straying. look at how god describes these people says therefore i was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways it's, it's somebody who has really just set their heart against doing things God's way. Like they, just, they just keep coming back to it. They keep straying. They keep failing. They keep doing it over and over and over. It, it's not just a, a work in progress. It's somebody who's really not being worked on. Like they're showing themselves to not be a believer. They always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. The context, as I told you, is, is the passage comes from Psalm chapter 95. So if you want to flip over to Psalm 95, you'll notice some differences in the quotation. Psalm 95, verse 7, at the end of verse 7, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day, of, or the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had uh, seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All right. Somebody remind me why, why is the quotation different? Yeah, it's coming from the Greek translation. So I just read to you the English translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, right? In Hebrews chapter three, we're reading to you the English translation of the Greek translation of this. Okay. So it looks a little bit different. In fact, what really should stand out to us is in verse eight, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, right? Those two words are different in the Old Testament Psalm passage in the Hebrew. They actually give the the title of the place where this happened. That's where I told you, man, it it seems that he's, he's alluding to these two incidences because of the words that are used here and some of the language that's used here. It draws our attention back to Exodus, draws our attention back to numbers where Israel tested God and rebelled against God. Okay. So the context here is Psalm 95, but it's referencing Exodus 17 and Numbers 14. And we see in the Exodus 17 passage where they complained about the water that's early in the process. And then the Numbers 14 passage, that's when they're supposed to go into the promised land. And that symptom of of being led astray has now become a habitual lifestyle where they want nothing to do with God's plan there. Zero trust in his provision. So it's been progressing, and then it continues, and then what happens after God says, "Okay, you can't go into the promised land; you are going to wander for forty years." Man, they just keep doing it again and again and again, right? Like they don't they don't show like this massive repentance and try to turn back to God. They keep being led astray. They keep failing to listen to the voice that's being heard. All right. Um, The concept of perseverance is talked about in this passage, and it's always tied to our faith, persevering in the faith. We've described faith in the past from a verb standpoint, so faith is a noun. The verb version would be trusting truth. Faith is the act of trusting truth. Okay, So we want to persevere in trusting the truth that we've been told about God. We also see the concept of rest that starts to pop up in this chapter. We'll see it more in chapter four. But throughout the Bible, rest is talked about typically in three contexts. You've got one where it's talked about God's rest from work in the Garden of Eden and how man's kind of invited into that rest where he rests on the seventh day. Then you have the idea of rest in the book of Hebrews in regards to Canaan and the promised land. And then we have this future rest, this eternal rest that's talked about in regards to the new creation. So we'll differentiate between those as we move through Hebrews, but the concept of rest is is introduced here in chapter three. Okay, now let's get back into the passage and we'll look at some key points from chapter three and try to give you a bunch of application ways for you to listen and hear God's voice today and respond, not in rebellion, but in obedience. All right, number one, keep your eyes focused on Jesus who is better than Moses. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus, who is better than Moses. For our kids, keep your eyes on Jesus. It says, those of you who are holy brothers, who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. All right, point number one under that, Jesus is a better man than Moses. He's a better man than Moses. Therefore, is how chapter three starts. So it reminds us of what we've already learned. Ultimately, the author is saying, in light of Jesus' superiority, in light of his plan to fix you, to give God glory, consider him. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's a better man than Moses. Now, I told you a couple weeks ago, we're not, we're not trying to, to degrade or downplay the Old Testament or degrade the, the different objects of the Old Testament, right? So it's not Moses is unfaithful, Jesus is faithful, right? Not that Moses is a bad prophet, Jesus is a better prophet. It's Moses was really faithful. Moses was a really good priest when he needed to function as a priest. He was a really good apostle or a really good sent individual to proclaim truths about God. But Jesus is better than that. He does it better. Moses did it well. Jesus does it better. So essentially the idea is if you like Moses, talking to this audience, if you think Moses is great, you're gonna love Jesus because Jesus is better than Moses, okay? He's a better man than Moses. Because he functions as a better apostle. The idea of apostle is being one who is sent, a sent one. John 17, 18 talks about, uh, Jesus says, Father, as you have sent me, I send my disciples now. Okay, so we think of the disciples as apostles. We don't typically think of Jesus being an apostle, right? Because it's become like an office or a function that a lot of the disciples held after Jesus's ascension. But Jesus, in its truest sense, is an apostle too, because he was sent by the Father, and he was sent by the Father for a particular purpose. A particular purpose, and that purpose was to represent God to man, okay? He represents God to man. But then secondly, he's called a better priest. He functions as a better priest, and while Aaron is where the the priesthood kind of develops there first off, right? So Aaron is kind of Moses is a sidekick and Aaron ends up being the, the priest. Um, Moses is identified as a priest in Psalm chapter 99, verse six. So he functions a lot like a priest, but Jesus is a better priest. So as an apostle, he represents God to man. As a high priest, he represents man to God. He's our advocate and he's a better advocate, right? Jesus stands in our place and takes our punishment. Remember, Moses tried to do this. Right? As great as Moses was, he couldn't be Jesus. Exodus chapter 32. This is after the children of Israel are dancing to the calf, right? Like, the, like they've been brought out of Egypt, saved from slavery. and they're 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 being given the, the Ten Commandments at the time. Right? Like God's giving the law to, the, to to Moses to bring to them, and they're told to wait, and they can't wait. They start worshiping other gods. And God gets really angry about that. And it says on verse 30 of Exodus 32, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses is like, I'm gonna try to fix this. Like this is bad. Like this is messy. This isn't good. Um, And I'm gonna go try to fix it. I'm gonna try to be your advocate and make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And Moses tries to stand in the gap for them, tries to take some of the heat for them. God says, it's just, it just doesn't work that way. Like, like you're great but you're not great enough, right? Jesus does exactly what Moses tries to do here and is accepted, right? His sacrifice is accepted. He does stand as an advocate for us. He does stand as a sacrifice for us. Jesus looks down and says, this is bad. This is not good. Right? You've sinned against God. I'm gonna, see, I'm gonna go before God as your advocate and make atonement for your sin if possible, and it is possible. Jesus does make that atonement, right? So Moses, good priest, good man, Jesus better. Jesus better. His sacrifice is accepted by God. He does become the best advocate, the best priest, the best sacrifice. All right. Number two, he has a better ministry than Moses. He has a better ministry than Moses. Again, not to not to degrade Moses in what he did. It's just that Jesus does it on a better scale, a grander scale. It says, for Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is described here as a faithful son rather than a faithful servant. Okay, so you've got Moses who does a great job of serving the house of God, but Jesus is described as the builder of the house, as the son of the house. Okay, Numbers chapter 12 verse 7 is a passage where God even affirms the faithfulness of Moses in the Old Testament. But Moses would agree Moses would agree with the author of Hebrews in saying Jesus is better than me because the New Testament even talks that Moses would say that. In John chapter five, verse 46, and in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, we are told that the law and the prophets, also in Romans three twenty one the law and the prophets point to Jesus. Remember when the, when the guys are on the road to Emmaus, it says that Jesus stops them and begins to expound about the fact that Moses and the prophets were talking about him. And so he does like this Old Testament explanation of how he is the fulfillment. Man, maybe even some of the teachings of Jesus find their way into the book of Hebrews by some of those guys passing on what Jesus shared with them on the road to Emmaus. Because he said, the Old Testament is about me. Let me show you how that's true. So Moses would even agree that Jesus is better than him. He has a better ministry than Moses. He's the builder of the house while Moses is only a part of the house. And the house being described here is is not a, a building, not a temple, but the people of God. The people of God is what's described as God's house. And Jesus is the builder of that. We see that throughout some of the letters in the New Testament. Jesus being the head of the church and he's the foundation, he's the cornerstone and he's building this body, he's building this temple out of God's people. He offers better rest than Moses. He's a better man, he's got a better ministry and he offers a better rest than Moses. If for no other reason, because Moses failed to lead people into the rest. Right, Moses was insufficient. He couldn't change people's hearts, right? Like Moses, man, Moses gives great truth. He preaches great sermons to the children of Israel as they leave Egypt and they wander and move towards the promised land. Wasn't that Moses had a bad message. It's just that he couldn't change hearts. He takes a group of sinful people to the promised land, to the brink of God's rest, And after all of his teaching, after all of his explaining, after bringing the the law down and expounding upon it to the people of God, they get to the brink of God's rest and they say, nope, our hearts are hard. We don't wanna go in, we don't wanna trust God. And Moses can't bring anybody into God's rest. And it wouldn't have really mattered who was leading the people of Israel if it was just a human. They wouldn't have been able to lead them into God's rest. Only Jesus can fix hearts. Only Jesus can soften hardened hearts. And that's exactly what he does to lead us into eternal rest, right? So he offers a better rest because Moses couldn't lead anybody into rest. And Jesus promises rest for those that persevere, those that hold fast to the confidence who boast in the hope until the end. It's the confidence that one would have if they owned a piece of property and they had the deed in hand kind of gives you authority and confidence over that piece of property. That's where the the word comes from. It's that we feel so confident in the work of Jesus Christ that we hold fast to him until he comes back for us. The implication from this section here, consider, because that's what the author tells us, consider Jesus, consider how to keep your heart set on Jesus, which will lead to perseverance in the end. There's a personal responsibility piece attached to this. You have a responsibility to figure out how to consider Jesus regularly in your life to keep your heart set on him. It's one of the keys to persevering to the end is you consider Jesus who is worthy of consideration because of how the author has described him. He's a better angel. He's a better messenger. He's a better prophet. He's a better apostle. He's a better priest right? Like he does all of those things that they do, but does them better, does them better than they can, right? He's worthy of our consideration. Why would we walk away from him? The author says consider him, because when you really do, when you really stop and pause and consider him, man, mean, there's no other options for you. There's no other, there's no other way to walk away from that if you really consider him, all right? Number two, keep your ears and hearts open for the voice of God. Keep your ears and heart open for the voice of God. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Because what happens if you do that? You go astray in your heart, it says in verse 10. And why do you go astray? Because you've not known my ways. The idea here is that there's ignorance, but the ignorance is due to not listening. So Israel was led astray because of their ignorance, but they were ignorant because they had not listened to the voice of God. And so it led to them straying and falling away. For our kids, keep your ears open when the Bible is taught. Man, every time you sit under the Bible, you you implicate yourself more and more. You You are reducing the excuse of ignorance every time you hear God's word taught. And some of us have, have implicated ourselves greatly over the years, right? Some of us grew up in, in Christian schools. Some of us have been in church since we were born and we've heard countless Sunday school lessons, countless sermons, ca- countless chapel services, countless Bible classes. I mean, we have implicated ourselves greatly. We can't claim any ignorance. We've been taught God's word since we were born, right? And, and it's up to us to really hear it, right? He who has ears to hear, let him hear, not just with his ears, but with his heart. Because Israel claimed ignorance. They they didn't know my ways. They went astray in their heart and their ignorance was due to not listening. Number one, Israel failed to trust God when life was hard. Failed to trust God when life was hard. They did not trust the one that saved them from slavery in both accounts that we read earlier in our small group time. They're doubting God because things are hard and they're really thirsty, right? Like they're thirsty and they can't find water anywhere and there doesn't seem to really be any hope of finding water. But, but this is the same God who's been providing for them since he showed up to them personally in Egypt and led them out of slavery through Moses, who parted the Red Sea right like it's it's that god who has already miraculously shown them all kinds of signs and wonders and they have forgotten very quickly and and life gets a little bit hard and circumstances are not as desirable hey didn't you promise to take care of us didn't you promise to give us water well not technically but god keeps coming through and providing for them right but but they want to they want to get they want to get real personal with god and, and 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 really blame him for their circumstances and they don't trust him and then when they get to the, so, but God provides for them there, right? Like God gives them miraculous water to drink. And then God begins to give them miraculous food and, and really takes care of them until they get to the brink of the promised land. And then these spies come back and they say, best land we've ever been in, right? Like the best honey, the best milk, the best grapes, like this stuff is huge. And so are the people and so are the armies. And, and so, all of this good stuff is presented and then it's kind of presented in a challenging way that I don't know if we can beat these people. They're really good and they're really strong. And, and so the people say, you know what? We'll forfeit, we'll forfeit all that good stuff because we don't wanna die in the promised land. And so they doubt God when things, when things get hard and when things get tough, even though God has shown himself to be true time and time again. And we read that and we say, man, why do they do that? And we forget that oftentimes we're just like that right? Like we see God, we see God come through for us constantly. But oftentimes when things get tough again, we begin to doubt him and we begin to question him and potentially get to blame him. One of the things my mom started doing, and I forget what age it was, I think my dad did like some type of sermon on a rainbow or something. And my mom just went nuts with rainbows about God's promises. And she, she has like this thing that she calls a rainbow book. Um, and she just writes down all of God's provision in her life. Anytime God does something big, she records it and writes it down in her rainbow book. Why? So that she can go back and reference it as she continues to get older and as her memory fades and she begins to forget things more regularly, she can pull out the rainbow book and say, this is when God took care of me. This is when God took care of me. This is when God provided for me. Man, that started before my dad left and continued through that time when my dad left. Time and time again, she sees God provide. And she can go back and reference that because she's got it documented. Israel would have benefited probably from a rainbow book as they were getting ready to go into the promised land. Hey, this army's really big. Yeah, but let's pull out the rainbow book and see God has provided over and over and over again. Why would we doubt him now? And we criticize Israel very quickly because we've heard these stories all through Sunday school and we fail to put ourselves into the position of them and realize, and we do it on a much lesser degree right? Like, like oftentimes we'll blame God or, or doubt God in stuff that's far less than facing giant armies. It's facing issues at work, facing relationship issues in our family, right? Like, like much lesser deals than having to go up against a giant army. But we criticize Israel for doubting God there. We need to be very, very quick to look at ourselves and say, man, when do I doubt God? And why do I do that? And how should I not? Consider Jesus. We don't have to doubt him when we consider him. Israel failed to trust God when life got hard. Number two, Israel wanted immediate gratification rather than delayed satisfaction. They wanted immediate gratification rather than delayed satisfaction. They grumbled about the process and they grew discontent. Man, they're worried about water when God has promised to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, right? Like, like they're doubting the ultimate promise of God because they're doubting him on a daily basis. You're not gonna even give us water to make it to the promised land of milk and honey. And they, they, they doubted him because they wanted immediate gratification versus delayed satisfaction. Man, mean, they're guilty of, of really what Esau did, right? Esau's like, I'm so hungry. Like I, I gotta eat now. And Jacob's like, I got something for you. Just give me your birthright. Like, just give me, give me what's really gonna be the satisfaction and I'll gratify you right now. And Esau says, yes. And that's ultimately the temptation of sin, right? It's be gratified now versus satisfied later. And so we yield to temptation, we yield to sin because it seems to, seems to satisfy us now. Like, we, we don't think we're, we're trading the greater satisfaction for gratification right now. We think we're getting satisfaction now. And then we seize it and realize it didn't satisfy me like I thought it would. It it, it gratified me in the immediate, but it didn't satisfy me long-term. That's what Israel craved. They wanted immediate gratification versus delayed satisfaction. They wanted water now. And if we can't have it now, we'll just go back to Egypt where there's water. Yes, there's slavery back there, but at least there's water back there, right? They wanted immediate gratification versus delayed satisfaction. They grumbled about the process. They grew discontent. The implication for us, take care to avoid a hardened heart that will keep you from persevering to the end. Again, personal responsibility, take care. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So we need to consider Jesus That keeps us persevering. We need to take care to avoid a hardened, unbelieving heart. That will keep us persevering as well. Then he gives explanation for how to do that. How do we take care lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart in us that leads us to fall away? How do we do that? Number three, keep your life filled with Christians who encourage you. Keep your life filled with Christians who encourage you. So keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Keep your ears and heart open for the voice of God. Okay, consider Jesus, hear his voice, respond to it, don't rebel against it, be obedient to God's word, and then keep your life filled with Christians who will encourage you. You protect your heart as you seek to help others protect theirs. Says so verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. For our kids, keep your life filled with good Christian friends, people that will encourage you, people who share the same goals as you. All right, number one, what are the causes of a hardened heart? What are the causes of a hardened heart? Well, it starts with the word being absent or being ignored in your life. When we ignore the word or it's absent, we start to drift. And then we start to fail to trust God when things are hard and don't make sense. And so we, we start going through this process of sanctification and we're being brought to glory and the word starts to get diminished in our life and it's not a priority. And, and at that moment when things start to get hard and they don't make sense, we start to, we start to fail in trusting God. And then deceit starts to set in and it leads us to confusion about the dangers of sin. Here's the thing. It's easier for individuals to be misled when they keep themselves in isolation. When we fail to, to, to put ourselves out there and, and to invest in other relationships and we kind of stay back in isolation, it's easier for us to keep our sin hidden. When conversations are only happening with ourself about decisions that we're making and temptations that we're facing, I mean, it's easy to get misled and deceived by ourselves. When we don't have a voice of reason or a voice of truth challenging what ourself is saying, it's easy to get misled. You see, you see these videos all the time. People use them as illustrations for this type of sermon where, where the, the, the prey, a predator's prey They they want to separate it from from the group, right? Like if you've got a lion out there, um, his goal is to try to separate one of the younglings from the rest of the group because that's when it becomes easier to attack him and to kill him. In isolation, we're far more deceived. In isolation, we're more likely to fall away. If we don't have others in our life and we're not putting ourselves into the lives of others, it's easy to get deceived. It's easy to fall prey to the enemy. So some of the causes of a hardened heart, the word is diminished in our life. We start to doubt God when things are tough. And then deceit confuses us about the dangers of sin because we're in isolation. But there's some remedies to avoid this type of hardening. And it's important for us to to take proactive measures because when the heart starts to harden, that's when unbelief starts to set in and and the challenge is that man if you start to if you're if you're in that state of unbelief you're you're in rebellion you're not holding fast to your confidence you're you're not boasting in the hope of Jesus any longer and you don't persevere to the end first of all from a remedy standpoint provide yourself ways to listen to God regularly and seek to apply what you have heard what you have learned quickly man this is the best way to not tune God out because that's what Israel had done. They had ignored his voice. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts in rebellion. So the flip side of that would be today, if you hear his voice, open your hearts in obedience, right? So we need to faithfully put ourselves under God's word. And we talked about this last week. That's through the public teaching of, of God's word here on a Sunday morning. That's through personal study in God's word throughout the week. That's through listening to podcasts, reading reading article. I mean, any way and every way that you can put yourself under God's word. Again, what's proportional to your desire to not drift? You know, your time in the word. So all kinds of ways to put yourself under God's word. The key is, is that we're not just reading, hearing, listening, and doing nothing with it. We have to be obedient, we have to respond to it. So provide yourself ways to listen to God regularly and seek to apply what you have learned quickly so that you don't tune them out. And then keep your heart tilled soft with the exhortations of others, right? So I need to put myself in position to be exhorted by others. I need to put myself in position to be known by others so that they can address situations in my life. And I need to keep my heart soft to hear those exhortations. Because if I don't have the exhortations coming into my heart and it's just me and myself over here talking about what I'm gonna do, very easy for me to be deceived by sin and to fall away. So instead, I need to have people speaking truth into my life, keeping my heart tilled up and soft through daily, regular exhortations from others. That word exhort is the word encourage. I think we've probably shared this before. Um, it, it's the word used for the Holy Spirit in John fourteen sixteen. When Jesus says he's going to send the Holy Spirit to encourage us, it's the same word. So you are to play a similar role or a similar function as the Holy Spirit is described as doing in the life of a believer. Now, Holy Spirit does it way better than us, right? In the same way that Jesus is a better Moses, Holy Spirit is a better accountability partner, okay? But the idea here is that I am to come alongside and encourage and push people towards spiritual maturity. That's the role I play as a believer. It's my job to do that in the lives of others and to invite others to do that in my life. We identify and invest in others for this type of help. And this can happen in a lot of variety of ways right? Some of you have deep, meaningful relationships with believers outside of this church, right? Um, The guys at Snowbird are guys that I typically call upon and reach out to when things are going on in my life, in addition to my accountability group, right? So I've got guys at Snowbird who have known me for a long time that I'll reach out to. I love getting up to Snowbird. I love getting away with them privately and kind of talking about things that are going on in my life, but the, but the longer I'm away from those guys, the longer they're not living near me, the more I realize, man, it just takes a long time to explain to them and get them caught up on things that are going on in my life to actually get guidance and wisdom. So the longer I'm here at this church, the more I rely upon my accountability guys because they, they know me better in the current context than some of these guys that have been lifelong friendships for me. Now, I still use both, and they're both very important in my life and both continue to exhort me and push me towards maturity in Christ. But there's something unique, and I think that's why God has universal church and local churches, because there's something unique about doing life together with people who are hearing the same things week in and week out. Right, like Robert Snowbird's not currently going through the book of Hebrews with me. He's not currently hearing these sermons being taught. So I can call him and talk and get advice and counsel about being obedient to God's word, but I can also call Ben who has sat in the same teaching as me and be able to get more current relevant discussion potentially because he's there with me doing it, right? Either way, we need exhortation coming into our life, whether that's from relationships within our church, relationships outside of our church, preferably both if we can have both, right? Some of you here in this church maybe don't have meaningful relationships outside of our church. I mean, your, your, your connection with Jesus and his church is right here and that's, that's it. You don't have people outside of this church. Man, it's preferable if we can have both because the more the better as far as the exhortation goes. But the key here is that every Christian needs it in their life. Every Christian needs the exhortation. Identify and invest in others for help and then help other people endure so that they're still around to help you. See, even in like our, our small groups and our accountability groups, it's not just about what you can get out of them, Right? because if you're going to keep enduring with the help of others, those others have to still be around to help you when you need it, right? And so you may be doing good and they're over here falling away. And then when you call upon them to help you, they're not, they're not around anymore because they fell away, they drifted. So it, it's, a, it's a two-way partnership, right? Like my accountability group, I need it, but it also needs me. The guys at Snowbird, I need them, but they also need me too. Like I play a role in the relationship as much as they play a role in it for me. Keep your heart tilled soft with the exhortations of others. Encourage them, much like the Holy Spirit is called to do that for us in our life. We identify and we invest in other people to help. Um, We need to appreciate the believers that God has put into our life. And we need to be in a position where we're welcoming that type of exhortation because here's what happened. The children of Israel said, no way, we're not going in there. And then Joshua and Caleb stand up and say, hey, we were a part of that spy group. And while these guys say we can't, we can, we can do this. God has provided us. Maybe Joshua and Caleb even open up their rainbow books and they're like, look, like, remember, we got water when we needed it. We've, we've seen God come through time and time and time again. We can do this. You know what the response was from the, from the children of Israel? It says they wanted to stone them. They wanted to stone them. Right? Like it wasn't just, hey, we'd like to have some different accountability partners here. Right? Like it's like, we want to kill the guys that are trying to hold us accountable to what we're supposed to be doing. Man, they were so resistant to the exhortation. God had placed people in their life to remind them, to encourage them, to exhort them so they wouldn't fall away, so they wouldn't be deceived, so they wouldn't rebel against God's voice. And they said, you know what? We hate that voice. We hate that exhortation. We hate that encouragement. And we need to appreciate the believers that God has put into our life. And then regular confession of sin keeps us sensitive to sin. James five sixteen talks about the healing that comes from confessing sin. The implication then for us is to exhort one another regularly because drifting from the word will quickly lead to doubting and disbelieving the word. Man, our role in exhortation is to share truth, to remind people of promises when things get tough and when sin looks good. Remember, we've talked about here in Hebrews, what we're going to find is that perseverance, the two threats to perseverance, trials and temptation. When things get hard, Christians want to walk away. And when things get deceptive, Christians want to walk away. We need each other to exhort each other so that we make it through hard times and we don't doubt God. We make it through tempting times and we don't disbelieve God. I want to clarify as we wrap up here a couple of, a couple of truths about perseverance, right? Because you read this passage and if you're not careful, you could walk away from this saying, man, can I lose my salvation here if I'm not careful? Can I forfeit what I currently possess? I'm, I'm, I know I'm a Christian, But man, I feel this weighty expectation that if I don't do things right moving forward, I'm gonna lose my salvation, right? So I wanna clarify a little bit about how I'm 100% security of the believer. You can't lose your salvation. And this passage only reinforces that for me, okay? So some truths about perseverance that I want you to kind of hang on to. What this passage, what this chapter is saying is that only those who persevere in faith will be saved. And only those with genuine faith will persevere. All right, so you don't have um, non-genuine believers persevering. Right, non-genuine believers fall away; they drift at some point. Only people that are truly saved persevere, and people with genuine faith persevere. Only those who persevere in faith will be saved, and only those with genuine faith will persevere. Secondly, our faith began in the past and continues today if we hold fast until the end. Our faith began in the past and continues today if we hold fast until the end. All true Christians persevere, but not all professing Christians persevere. All true Christians persevere, but not all professing Christians persevere. And we'll know which one is which when we get to the end and see who perseveres. 1 John 2, 19 is a good, healthy, helpful passage that, that kind of shares the other side to this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Children is the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. What's John saying there? He says, the way we know who are true Christians and who aren't true Christians, it's by whether they stay with us or not. If they drift and fall away, not really Christians. If they persevere to the end, they're absolutely Christians, okay? Let me show it to you this way. The positive statement is what we have in Hebrews 3, 14. The positive statement is, for, if, for we have come to share in Christ today, present tense. We are a Christian today. We have come to share in Christ today if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Notice what that is not saying. That is not saying that if we hold our original confidence firm to the end, we become a Christian. It doesn't say if we hold our confidence firm to the end, then we get saved. It says, we are a Christian today. We have come to share in Christ today. We are saved today if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now let's say it in the negative sense. If we were to rewrite Hebrews in the negative sense, then we would be saying, we have not come to share in Christ today if indeed we do not hold our original confidence firm to the end. Notice that nothing is being lost here. What we are describing is what is true today. What is true today? Okay, I I shared it back at Mount Gilead in this way. If I had a seed and I was ignorant about seeds and I didn't know what the seed was and I planted it and I watered it and I took care of it and then months later, a watermelon was produced from that seed. We could go back and say that seed was a watermelon seed, right? So we could say today, this seed is a watermelon seed if... A couple of months from now, we see a watermelon come out of the ground. If we see a pumpkin come out of the ground, it was never a watermelon seed that abandoned its purpose of being a watermelon seed to produce, to produce pumpkins. It was always a watermelon seed and it showed itself to be a watermelon seed when you stuck it in the ground and it responded to the elements. If it shows up to be a pumpkin, it was never, it may have looked like a watermelon seed. Somebody may have colored it with a magic marker to where it looked like a, a, a watermelon seed but it showed itself to be what it was when we put it in the ground. That's what this passage is saying. It's not saying that if you don't persevere to the end, you you, you stop sharing in Christ. It just says you never had a part in Christ if you don't make it to the end. So there's no threat to the security of your salvation here. But if you're truly a Christian, you won't walk out of here and say, I don't need God's word. I don't need the exhortation of others because I'm secure in Christ. A true Christian hears this and says, man, I need others to make it to the end. And you desire it, you want it because you wanna hear God's voice because you are truly a Christian, okay? So just to kind of clarify there, if, if we come to share, if we, if we hold fast to the end, then we have come to share in Christ today. And if we don't make it to the end, we never really came to share in Christ at all, all right? From an application standpoint, two things. Two questions, because the whole thing has been very application-driven, right? Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Keep your ears and heart open for the voice of God. Keep your life filled with Christians who encourage you. Do I show a pattern of listening and applying the word of God as a sign of belief? And if not, that needs to change if you're really a Christian. Is there a pattern of listening and applying the word of God in your life that will keep you persevering to the end? Right, the Holy Spirit, obviously all of this is is the Holy Spirit sealing us to the day of redemption. But our part in working out our salvation is to put ourselves under God's word, to respond in obedience to God's word. Do I show a pattern of seeking and responding to exhortation to push back against unbelief? Do I show a pattern of seeking and responding to exhortation to push back against unbelief? Am I inviting other people into my life, sharing with them my doubts, my frustrations, my temptations, so that they can speak truth to me in times where I'm being deceived? We need that. All of us need that. Whether you're an elder or whether you're a new believer, everybody needs that in their life. Because the deceitfulness of sin is powerful. And we need people speaking truth to us, exhorting us, so that we persevere to the end family worship questions. Read Hebrews chapter four as a family this week. Talk about some of the clear things in the chapter. Talk about some of the questions that you might have as well. I'm gonna post a couple of follow-up resources for you based on uh, Hebrews chapter three. Um, One of the things that I I wanna share with you is something that I shared um, with some of our leadership. Uh, It's an article by Desiring God that talks about some of the, the high lofty expectations that sometimes we have for our small group and for our accountability group. And when those expectations aren't met, how that kind of breeds a dissatisfaction in us. And it's a great article kind of reminding us that this isn't a perfect bride. This local church isn't perfect, right? And our role within this imperfect local church is to love and serve and exhort each other and to to have healthy expectations for what that's gonna look like. So I'm gonna share that article with you because I think it's a great article to kind of work through and read through, especially as we kind of talk about the potential of, uh, shuffling some of our small groups, creating more small groups that allows for greater growth. That we talked about in our um, our series on the vision for our church. That that it kind of helps us remind ourselves that man, things aren't going to always be perfect in our C groups. It's not going to always be perfect in our accountability groups. But we're working through this together because we see a, a need and a call to exhort one another. And that's kind of an environment that we've just tried to create here as leadership to give you an outlet for that, especially if you don't have outside relationships um, from this church, that there's a means and a way to see this kind of lived out in, in, in one example, one way that we can apply this passage, okay? Let's pray together. And then Tyson's gonna come and lead us in one more song. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that the passages that we read in your Bible are not generated by man, that the Holy Spirit has been writing it from the very beginning, And God, we're thankful that it's not outdated, that it's not old, that the Holy Spirit spoke in times past and the Holy Spirit is still speaking the very same things today. God, I pray that we would see the the need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, that he is superior to everything else this life offers, that he is our, our all sufficient help in bringing us to glory. God, help us to see the need to keep our ears and hearts open anytime your word is being spoken. Anytime your word is being taught, God help us to be very quick to listen and to apply the things that we're hearing. To fight off against a, a hardened, rebellious heart, God help us to see the need to to keep encouraging friends in our life that share the same goals as us that want to follow Jesus. God help us to see our call to exhort and our need to receive exhortation. God, I pray that we would leave today evaluating our life based on on what we've heard. That we would ensure that there is a pattern in our life where we're hearing and responding to your word and we're seeking and giving exhortation as needed. Because God, we do want to persevere to the end and we're thankful that you are going to finish the work that you've started in us. God, for those that are here today that are professing Christians that maybe aren't aren't true Christians, that are going to fall away if something doesn't change, God, I pray that you'd bring them to salvation. Help them to see their need for Jesus. Help them to see that our good works can never save us, nor do they keep us saved. That it's all in the work of Jesus Christ. God, help us to respond based on how you're encouraging and and convicting each one of us today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.savhope.org.